Uh, well, I was going to say, would you turn in your red Bibles to page 1227? But uh, uh, if you have a Bible anywhere near to hand, uh, we thought we'd continue with our series in the first letter of John. Um, and we are turning uh, this morning to chapter 4 of 1 John. Um, and it has some superb and famous statements. I found it tempting to seize on uh, one or two of the famous verses in chapter 4 of 1 John, like verse 4, uh, in the current crisis, the one who's in you, that is Jesus by his spirit, is greater than the one who's in the world. John is there quoting the end of chapter 16 of John's gospel when Jesus had said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, but the victory Jesus and John in his letter are speaking of isn't, of course, victory over a pandemic, a virus but victory over a pandemic of a different sort, over um, the vitriol from the world opposing the faith. It's assurance for the persecuted Christian if he or she is pursued or tortured or even martyred. We're in the hands of a superior force. We know who wins in the end and we're on the winning side. Uh, but it's still a great verse, isn't it? He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. One of the first verses I, I learned as a new Christian believer. And just a reminder to us that in our own concerns in this country, we should still be mindful of our brothers and sisters across the world who are suffering all sorts of different uh, kinds of trial and tribulation. Uh, it's been tempting to seize on the wonderful verse 17 uh, towards the end of chapter four. There is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear. Uh, but the answer to fear that John is speaking of there isn't the answer to the fear of sickness or even of death, but the fear of judgment after death. He's saying once you've been gripped by the love of God in Christ, his death in our place, you'll be delivered from the fear of God's judgment because, as he says in verse 17, this particular fear, that is of the judgment day, has to do with punishment, he says. The one who fears isn't perfected in love. Whereas the one who has assurance of eternal life will not fear. So again, a tremendous statement and comfort for the Christian. But neither of these great Bible verses is the answer to the coronavirus. But verses seven to 12 are something of the answer. Uh, we're continuing today from last Sunday. And uh, do you remember that John is talking about the three grounds of assurance of the Christian, the three tests of faith. Uh, the social test is this one. The false teachers in Ephesus had exhibited three very negative characteristics. First, they denied the incarnation that uh, Jesus was the Christ come in the flesh. That was their doctrinal error. Secondly, they denied the reality of sin and the need for righteousness. That was their moral error. And this third denial was the denial of the unity of the church. They were dividing the church. That was their social error. And that seems to be why John's third emphasis in his letter is on the preeminence of love. Let me acknowledge at the outset the discomfort we ought to feel. For example, when we come to 
verses 7 and 8. Let me read these to you. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And I found myself asking, is it really true that only Christians are loving, as it seems to suggest, when the church is often accused of being hypocritical, uh, and uh, when we're often faulted for being self-righteous and narrow and judgmental, when Christian groups can be rightly condemned for being exclusive or unwelcoming, we need to be discomforted by this. And that's why John felt it necessary to write it. Christian communities can become centres of gossip or of division. But I have to say that unloving caricature of the church hasn't been my experience, either at the beginning uh, or now. Uh, it wasn't the observation of the communist torturer. Now, this comes from uh, the Romanian church in the time of Ceausescu, and if you know it, uh, the history of Pastor Richard Vermbrandt, uh, and in his book, Tortured for Christ, he talks about a communist torturer who, in frustration, exploded. He said, if we cut out their tongues and forbid the Christian speech, they love with their hands, with their feet and with their eyes. They love always and everywhere until their last breath. Does no one know how to take out the power of love from these stupid Christians? Does no one know how to lay hands on their Christ? I myself was drawn to the Christian community and to Christ by the love I saw among Christians, a love that I hadn't seen or experienced anywhere else before. But I expect we've all heard, uh, and even ourselves said, why are some of the non-Christians I know more loving than some of the Christians I know? Ouch. How do we understand the unloving Christian and the loving non-Christian? Well, it should certainly distress us, but not disturb our faith. When non-Christians are loving, they are drawing on rich veins of what's called common grace, common to all human beings made in the image of God, through God's general revelation of himself in the whole of creation. When Christians appear unloving, we're failing to draw on the supernatural or special grace available to us in Christ. And by the way, incidentally, I think as a society becomes increasingly secular, that inheritance of common grace, moral goodness in society, is going to dry out and it will become increasingly selfish. Uh, I read the story of an American college principal. Um, he was giving his graduation speech and was, was expected to give a lengthy oration. Instead of which, he stood up and he just spoke seven words, then defined each one with a couple of sentences and sat down. Uh, the last word was love, and this is what he said. Love is the most unnatural human emotion. We've learned to transplant the human heart, but know not how to transform it. Commit an unnatural act. Love one another. 
And he was quoting that verse 7 of chapter 4. Now, John has already mentioned the command to love in chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, where he said, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that you've had from the beginning. So that from one perspective, it's not anything new. You know it, he said, from the beginning, that is from the Old Testament. But from another perspective, it was and is a new commandment. Because this is what Jesus called it in his gospel. In John chapter 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says it's new because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. In other words, it belongs to the new age that has dawned with Jesus Christ. So this commandment to love is both old and new, depending on your perspective. When I look on to chapters 3 and 4, where John expands on the supremely important commandment. In chapter three, Rosie spoke on it last week, we were given the definition of love. And in chapter four, we're given the motivation for love. John reinforces the reasons for Christian love. He's already outlined the standard of Christian love in the acknowledgement of Christ's love. That was in Verse 16 of chapter 3, this is how we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. Uh, If you haven't seen it yet, do look at it on the plaque as you go up the Dury Hall stairs at the top of the stairs. Uh, We put it there when we dedicated the Dury Hall because Ian Dury himself was such an amazing and wonderful exemplar of that love. But John's main concern there was to describe what kind of love he was talking about. Unselfish love, love with no strings attached, with no hint of self-interest. Now again in chapter 4, he returns to this theme because John is concerned to know if we've truly taken on, taken on the chin, the full impact of it. Are we compelled by this logic of love. And if not, as he suspects, we'll certainly need to be motivated and exhorted to follow in the way of love. And so let's just look at it a little bit more closely. Three times in these verses, the same refrain occurs. It's it's like a chorus to a song. It's love one another, verse seven. Again, love one another. Verse 11. Again, love one another. Verse 12. And you can't help noticing the mutual reciprocal quality about it. One another. The first is an exhortation. Just look at it with me. Verse 7. Let us love one another. The second is an obligation. Verse 11. We also ought to love one another. And the third is expressed as a condition in verse 12, if we love one another. And in each case, when the love one another phrase comes, a reason is given why we should do so. So let me just unpack a tiny bit about each one. First of all, we should love one another, verse 7, he says, for love comes from God. 
That is because all true, real love, even that of unbelievers, comes ultimately from God himself. Look at verse 7 again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whereas, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. In other words, if we don't love one another, we're denying the essential being of the God whom we claim to love and serve. Now, in the light of what I just said earlier, this statement that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God is, at one level, patently untrue. If that is, you're referring to ordinary human love. Love isn't restricted to the Christian church. There's much love in the world at large, and I think we're seeing it at the moment. Parents love their children. Husbands and wives love each other. Friends love one another. And neighbours are wonderfully looking out for one another, caring for one another. And yet these may not be born of God and know God at all. So love isn't restricted to the Christian community if you're talking about ordinary and natural love. Now John is talking about an unnatural and special kind of love. The love he's already defined in chapter 3. The love of the cross of Christ. The love even of your enemy. So we should love one another because love comes from God, who is love. That was verses 7 and 8. Secondly, we can go further than that and say we should love one another, not only because God is love, but we should love one another because God has loved us. And this is verses 9 to 11. Let me read these to you. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And did you notice in verse 10, the central thought, he loved us. God demonstrated his love for us in history. And so John is progressing from God's essential eternal being, he is love, to his historical doing. He has loved us. So that God's love is not as the Buddhist thinks or as the New Age mystic thinks today, an abstract quality. He has given concrete evidence of it. It's one thing to say God is love. It's another to say that he has showed it, as he does there in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And do you see the essential point is that God, in his love, took the initiative And that's why he continues in verse 10, famously, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, 
uh, repeating the phrase from verse 9, he sent his son, he sent his son. And so the dual purpose of God sending his son was on the one hand as an atoning sacrifice for our sins to forgive us, and on the other hand so that we might live through him. Just think of that. Those are the two supreme gifts of God's love to the Christian, forgiveness and life. Well, if God loves us like that, then he says, verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So are you with me? We should love one another first because God is love eternally. Secondly, because God has loved us historically. And thirdly, this is the third thing, we should love one another because God shows his love visibly. That is now, today. And in the future, God wants to fill out his presence visibly in us. It's verse 12. Let me read it. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God. That's familiar, isn't it? God is invisible. So how is he to be made visible to people today? In history, he made himself visible in Christ. Uh, And that we might be remembering from Christmas. Do you remember? John pointed it out in the prologue to his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only from the Father, who's at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has made him known. And God made visible in Jesus Christ is still a compelling motivation to love today, as we've just seen. But there's more to be said, because God's intention is that today he should be made visible to the world in us. Let me read it again, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, and we're expecting him to say, but Jesus has made him known, as he did in the gospel, instead of which he says, But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us or fulfilled or perfected or fleshed out in us. In other words, the invisible God who once took human flesh in Christ now makes himself visible in Christians. If if we love one another, there's an if. So here then are the three solid reasons why we should love one another. The first is the being of God. He is love. The second is the activity of God because he has loved us. The third is the indwelling of God because if we love one another, it demonstrates he dwells in us and makes himself visible in his people. Now, dear friends, don't you find that motivating as I do? 
God's love originates in himself. He is love. It was manifest in his son. He sent him into the world. And today it is fleshed out, incarnated today in his loving people. A love that begins in the church family, but is intended by God to overflow to the world. You know the secular proverb, charity begins at home. Well, it's certainly the case, usually, that if Christian love doesn't begin within the church family, it doesn't begin. And equally, that if it ends within the church, it ends. Our love should originate among us. But if I'm allowed to use the comparison, it should spread like a virus beyond us. This present crisis is a moment, as Christine and I said at the beginning, for the church to be the church, to demonstrate the love of Christ in action, and to demonstrate Christ himself, who loved us and lives in us. And I have been staggered and just wonderfully amazed seeing this among you already, among us, organising into loving cell groups, initiating coffee outside in the street at 11, phoning a few people each day, especially the vulnerable, doing errands, delivering supplies, praying. This is the distinctive thing as Christians we can do, praying for family, friends, St Mark's friends, neighbours, posting our flyers, sending messages of encouragement, gathering virtual groups. So, dear friends, as John began in verse 7, let us love one another, for love comes from God.